0: All right. Are you all ready to start chapter two? All right, good. I hope so because we finished chapter one. So, you know, like that's next. Um, Last week, we finished out chapter one. We talked about lots of good and exciting things. And because of the nature of biblical literature, we'll continue to talk about all those good and exciting things because that's the way the Bible is structured to weave in on itself and remind you of what it's already said and continue to build new points using the information that's already given you. So we'll still talk about all of that good stuff, but we're going to move on into chapter two. And this is where we're going to live for the next month or so, at least a few weeks. So just a few facts. We're going to talk first about a little bit of the literary structure that we've looked into so far. Chapter two is constructed of 22 verses. um, And these 22 verses can be divided into two movements that are pictured here. Um, this is a story that Paul is going to tell, and it's, it's basically the same story, but he's going to tell it in two slightly different ways, and those two ways parallel each other. He's going to tell the story of what you were before you were in Messiah from the perspective of like the cosmic, um, you being a human, being descended from Adam and Eve, your, your perspective from the cosmic humanity. And he's also going to tell it from the perspective of the covenant perspective. So two stories they parallel each other, and he starts out with each story saying, "Remember at that time." You can see it in uh, right here. Remember at that time you were dead, and he says here, "Remember at that time you nations in the flesh you were estranged." So from the cosmic perspective. You're dead in your transgression. This is what I was getting at last week when I talked about the whole zombie thing. It says that you're dead in your transgression and in your sin, but you're walking in the ways of the world. You're walking and you're doing the desires of the flesh. So you appear, you have this appearance that you're alive. And um, again, that's one of those things, elements of the apocalypse. If we look with just our physical eyes, It looks like everything's fine. It looks like people are vibrant and, you know, living life and they're free and all these things. But the real spiritual reality of the situation is that they're the walking dead if they're outside of the Messiah. So he goes on in the covenant... Um, perspective of the story. And he says, not only were you cosmically dead, but he describes us as foreigners to the covenants, that we were estranged from the family of Israel, foreigners of the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. So the way he's portraying this picture of who we are, who we were before we met Messiah, before we came into him, is pretty grave. It's a, it's a really serious description that he's given us here in developing this whole idea so then moving on in each story, he goes on to talk to us about the agents of death. What is it that keeps humanity and keeps people in that space? Well, first of all, he identifies that as the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit now at work and the sons of disobedience. And that's part of the influence that keeps people cosmically dead. And then also what keeps them covenantally dead is again, that dividing wall, the hostility. So this is an interesting thing. It keeps people out, the Gentiles, out of the covenant family. The Torah, something that was good from God, and it was meant to bring life and blessing. What ended up happening was death because of Israel's failure, their failure to be faithful to the covenant and to extend the blessing to all of humanity, to extend it to the nations, to be that vehicle Of restoring God's blessing to people. And in turn, it also generated hostility and division between Israel and all the nations. So that keeps people covenantally isolated from the family of God. Moving on in both stories, you'll see what is God's intervention in both of these situations. So when you're dead in your transgression, what does God do? He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He makes you alive together with the Messiah. And he saves you by grace. He gives you this incredible gift by grace that you can't earn. It's not of yourself. There's no way that you can come by it on your own. Not only that, he brings you into Messiah Jesus. You who were far off at one point have now been brought near. You're no longer cosmically dead and you're no longer covenantally dead. But you have been brought into the family of God. You're no longer estranged. In the new creation result, if you look at both sides of the story, you'll see this unity between them in the idea of unity. The word together and both and the two into one is used over and over in both of the new creation results and both parallel stories. So he made you alive together. He raised you up together. He seated you together in Messiah Jesus. And he, you've been, he goes on to say that you've been created In Messiah Jesus for all of these good works, you've been created. How does that work? I mean, because you're sitting right here in front of me, but you've been created. This is new creation language. You're something new when you come into Messiah Jesus. And he made both groups into one from the covenant perspective. He took the Jew and the Gentile and he made them into one new humanity. He created two into one. And now they both have access to one spirit to the father through that one spirit. So you're no longer covenantally dead. You're no longer orphans and fatherless living in the world, living based on survival and what you can get for yourself. Now you have a father and you're a part of God's family. And these are all of the awesome new creation blessings that come to us when we are in Jesus Messiah. So those are the two stories told parallel that are in chapter two. Those are the two movements Um, to start this week and probably all of next week we're just going to focus on the first story the cosmic perspective which is verses um, 1 through 10 so let's start by just reading through so you can follow along in your um, uh, logical flow translation and we'll just read through verses 1 through 10 the cosmic perspective the first story and y'all Being dead in y'all's transgressions and sins, in which at one time y'all walked, according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all used to live. Do you see that transition there, where Paul is talking to y'all, y'all Gentiles, you are dead in your sin and transgression, and he says, and we also, the Jews, We also lived in that. He goes on to say, We also used to live by the passions of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and the mindsets, and we were by nature children of wrath, as also were the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, and we, being dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with the Messiah. By grace, y'all have been saved. And he raised us up together and sat us together in the heavenlies with Messiah Jesus in order that he might demonstrate in the ages which are coming, the surpassing richness of his grace by kindness to us in Messiah Jesus. For it is by grace that y'all have been saved through trust. And this is not from yourselves. It is not, it is the gift of God. It is not from works in order that no one can boast for we are his handiwork having been created in Messiah Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So if you just look at verses one through 10, this first story about the cosmic perspective and you divide it up, it is really interesting. What it consists of is you have these outliers. At first, Paul goes into this exposition of what you were before you were in Messiah, right? Being dead in your transgressions and walking according to the age of this world and doing the things of the flesh and those mindsets and all of those things. And that's at the beginning. And then at the end, he goes into all of this new creation language. But here in the center, right here, he's doing this bouncing back and forth. So he's saying, you were dead, but God, he was rich in mercy because of the great love, which he loved us. And then he recalls the human condition again. He's like, remember how dead you were? (laughs) He's pointing out the incongruity of the gift. The fact that God was rich in mercy towards you when you were this thing. Before you knew him, he was still rich in mercy towards you. He's pointing out the unlikelihood of you being given this gift. He's bouncing back and forth. So this is what you were, but God is rich in mercy and remember, you were dead in your transgression. And then God does all of this awesome stuff. He goes into all of this um, enthronement language. And he says that like, he made you alive. He uh, raised you up. All of these awesome things that he said about jesus remember this is the same language that he's echoing that he said in chapter one about jesus and his exaltation into the heavenly realm and he's what he's doing he's filling out this picture you remember the picture we talked about when jesus is uh, risen and exalted to the right hand of god paul's filling out this picture and he's saying hey look Here's you. I'm using that same language to echo your spiritual reality when you are in Messiah. That is just awesome. So grace, grace is a big component of this section of scripture. Uh, verses eight and nine here are something that we know by heart. This is a very familiar verse to a lot of Christians. For it is by grace that y'all have been saved through trust. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works in order that no one can boast. So it's not of yourselves. It is a gift. You have to receive it. If you remember back to our graphic about the two different ages, this age and the age to come, you remember the elements that are part of the earthly current age, death, slavery, violence, curse, Um, All of those different things. So in your own strength, you can try to overcome some of that stuff. And people do it all the time. Like they try to bring peace. They uh, come out against violence and slavery in the human realm and all these things. Um, You can try in your own strength to overcome some of that. But what about death? I'm pretty sure that no matter how hard I try, I am still mortal there's no way that I can overcome death on my own. If I'm going to overcome death, I have to receive it from the one who has power to overcome death. We can't do that in our own strength. Uh, That is definitely not for myself and it's not from yourself either. And uh, so that no one can boast. So when we think about these verses eight and nine, we tend to think about it in the individual perspective. of course, I can't boast before the Lord. There's no way that I can merit the favor of God in my own strength. There's no way I can overcome all of these elements on my own strength as an individual. And of course, that is very true, but there's another layer to this. Um, Also, I can't boast in my earthly status as the means of obtaining the gift. Um, I didn't come by this gift because of something that I have over anyone else. So obviously I can't uh, be good enough to get into heaven on my own, to be with God on my own. But also he didn't give me the gift because I'm more special than other people. And this has like a cultural major implication here, because remember the culture that we're talking about, these people lived in this honor, shame culture where things came to them according to their status remember some of those status things were things that you're just born with that you can't change and it just is the way it is and uh, things come to people opportunity comes to people favor comes to people because of their status their honor in the community and these people had to learn these people that Read this letter, had this letter read to them, they had to learn that the grace gift of God in Messiah Jesus was not given according to earthly honor. It was not given according to the old identities. They had to lay all of that aside in the new creation community. That is not why they got the gift. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't reserved only for the wealthy, for the influential, for the most powerful. It was for the whosoevers, regardless of their worldly status. So it wasn't just about them before God. It was also, what does this mean for the Christian new creation community? Because this was a totally new idea to them. You know, to us, like I've said before, you can kind of get, like, you're not better than anybody And that's because of our culture. It sort of teaches us that in some ways. So when we come into the Christian community, that's not a natural inclination for us to think, well, I got the gift because of my earthly status. Um, We just don't see it that way. But that was new. That was a, a new idea to them. So... It's not just that they couldn't merit God's favor, but they also couldn't act like having this grace gift placed them in a special class above others. Because there are no dividing lines of favoritism with God when it comes to this. He doesn't have favorites that he's just offering salvation to because they're in a special class. And this takes us, I mean, right to the language of Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all of those things that define you in the world, they're irrelevant in the new creation and Messiah. So Paul here is describing, he's giving very practical advice because he's describing the house churches that are meeting. You go to this meeting and and uh, over here there's like a few Jews, and then there's people that are Gentiles, and there's families. So there's husbands, wives, male, female, there's children, and um, you might have like a master come, and his slave comes with him, because they're both believers. So you have all of these people in this meeting, and Paul's offering very practical advice here. He's just naming the people in the room and saying, you have all been clothed with Christ. You were all baptized into Christ. And he's saying all of those old identity elements, those are irrelevant to your status. They're irrelevant to your worth in the new creation. They're irrelevant before God and they should be irrelevant before each other. You know, this is a new community. It's a new thing. So that, Grace, gift, not being of yourselves so that no one could boast had a lot of cultural implications for the community of believers um, back in biblical times. So talking about grace and what that word means, um, you've probably heard this one because it's fairly popular. Um, I even know some people named charis. So grace in Greek is the word charis, um, and literally it just means gift. It can mean the concrete thing that someone gives you when they give you a gift. And it also has a metaphorical meaning. Uh, it can mean the attitude or the attribute of the one giving the gift. So not only do we receive something from God, we also see God as uh, being graced by nature. We describe God as very graceful in giving the gift. So that's the attitude and attribute. Um, portion of the definition so what constitutes a gift this is very interesting is dependent upon your cultural context some of these things just blow my mind because i grew up in the culture i grew up in so i don't know what other people think and uh, when i find out i'm like well that's different (laughs) Um, in the modern western culture that we all live in we have an idea of gifts The most special gift that anyone can give you is kind of governed by two factors. First of all, someone gives you a gift for no reason. Like they're unprompted. They just give you this gift. Not only that, but there's no strings attached. There's no obligation. Someone gives you this gift. It's a surprise. And it's for no reason at all. To us, that's the most virtuous gift we can receive. That's so special. Guess what? That's a modern Western conception of gifts. Other people don't think of gifts that way. In more traditional cultures, this is totally different. Um, Gifts are given to establish something. They're given to establish a relationship and to form a bond, but that does not diminish the specialness of the gift to them. That's just what a gift is. It's just something different. And uh, the person that I'm learning from, the professor that is teaching uh, this class on the Ephesians, he gave this awesome example of how he was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. And they had these um, culture lessons that they had to take before they went there about, hey, this is how things are different. One of the things that uh, he was told was, do not accept gifts. And people are going to be excited that you're there. They're going to be excited to meet you. And they're going to try to give you things. Don't take them. And uh, the reason why is because if you were to accept a gift from them, you could expect them to be on your doorstep the next day, waiting for you to pull something out of your suitcase (laughs) for them, because you've established this bond with them. You've established this relationship and they expect reciprocation from you. So that is their idea of a gift. Um, Gifts can be uh, used to purposely indebt someone like that. Um, that is certainly not the way God offers us a gift, but I say that just to tell you that the idea of a gift is complex and that it uh, looks different depending on the culture you're in. And Paul had a different conception of the gift than we conceive of gifts. It seems like his big point about this grace gift, if you look at the way he talks about it. It seems to be he highlights this incongruity of the gift. The incongruity between the abundance, the richness, and lavishness of the gift that God gives us and our unworthiness as receivers of the gift. Just how deep it goes that there's no way we could merit a gift so big. Um, Remember back in our graphic when we broke down verses 1 through 10, he does that. He highlights your condition of being dead He highlights God's rich in mercy, and he goes back just that one little line to remind you, remember how dead you were, before he goes into this awesome exposition of um, new creation and exaltation language. So humanity is literally destroying itself, and God's response is new creation. That's the gift that he offers, is this new creation, this new humanity in Jesus in response to humans destroying themselves and rebelling against him. I mean, it's just you can dwell on that for the rest of your life and you should. We we really all should because it's never going to we're never going to fully understand how amazing that is. So Paul also sees this gift that we're given, that we're offered as coming with an obligation. He sees it as coming with an obligation. And the obligation on the part of the receiver, what is it? It's loyalty. It's trust. You give your loyalty and your trust to God. And this does not diminish the specialness of the gift of salvation at all in Paul's mind. This is not a contradiction for him. It's not a problem for him. Um, He had a different conception of gifts. So often, I think in modern Western culture, the uh, salvation message is preached like, uh, this is free. It's a free gift. Come and take it. And when we hear free gift, we hear free gift. Like, okay, well, I don't, have, there's no response needed for me, but that's not correct. That's not what it means. So signs of this obligation, this reciprocal nature, where we reciprocate what God has given to us is found all over in Paul's writing and other New Testament writing as well. We're even told that we'll be held accountable for our works before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, that sounds like there's some response on our part to the gift. Um, even here in 1st Corinthians 15 the scripture starts to kind of flesh out this idea and that's all over the New Testament. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's highlighting the incongruity of the gift. He's saying, I was I was terrible. I was persecuting believers. I was celebrating when they were killed and pursuing them, all of these things. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So his grace extended to me, this grace gift that he gave to Paul. Paul says, oh, it was not in vain. I made a return on that gift that he gave to me. He says, no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, wait a second, but it wasn't me and my flesh, but the grace of God that was with me. So this incongruity, this mismatch, and this grace not coming in vain, Paul makes a return on it. Um, It's almost like the contrast of the lavishness of the grace and Paul's total unworthiness powers this transformation. It's like grace becomes a transformative agent for Paul. And it does the same thing in our lives. It's What is your response when someone offers you a gift that you can't repay? Like this gift is so perfect, it elicits the response of loyalty. It leaves out nothing. When I think about this, I think, what should my response be to God for what he's done for me? And the response is all of it. You give up the rights to yourself. That's your loyalty. That's your trust. So nothing is outside of the umbrella of what belongs to God. When it comes to us, it is all his. And at any time we should be ready to always surrender everything to God. And uh, that's the only response of the unworthy party is to offer themselves completely in loyalty. And that's what's expected when you receive the grace uh, gift from God. There's other, lots of examples of this um, play back and forth here in Philippians 1, 6. So it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So doesn't that sound all like divine initiative? Uh, that sounds all like God's carrying all the weight here. He's doing all the work. Right in the next chapter, here's this scripture. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What? I thought that God was going to do everything, but here is pictured like you've you've got to you've got to work that out. Uh, for it is God who works in you to will. He works in you to change your will to want to align with His, and uh, and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. So this is like a complex idea going on here of union between the believer and the Lord. And as I thought about this, I thought about my own experience. It's a little bit different. Let me look at Paul's experience. I think of my own experience. When I was first coming to know the Lord, um, I was feeling very convicted. Like, I don't know at what point on that continuum I got saved, but I was coming under conviction that God was real, that everything he said was true, and that I was in the camp of the dead ones. And uh, so I I started uh, kind of trying to bargain with God. And uh, this feeling of conviction was so uncomfortable to me that I just wanted to get rid of it. That was what I wanted. I wanted to be out from under that. And so I said, all right, God, um, I didn't say that, but subconsciously, this is the game I'm playing, is, uh, well, I know that you don't like drunks. I, don't, I know you don't care for that. I've, I've, got, I've been in church enough to know that. So uh, I'll just be sober. And if I do that, will you leave me alone? And um, so I did that in my own strength. I did that. I offered that to him and I was still convicted. So uh, I still, still felt that he was pursuing me and I was uncomfortable. So I'm like, okay, well, I know you don't like cussing. I know that's bad. Been in church enough to know that. So what if I just clean up my foul language? Will you leave me alone if I clean up my foul language? And I did that and he still pursued me. I was still under this conviction all the time of just feeling like uh, the walls were closing in on me. What he wanted was my believing loyalty. He wanted all of it. Like there's, (laughs) and I think subconsciously, there's something inside of us as human beings that doesn't want to surrender that. There's, uh, we want to maintain some of our rights to ourselves, but it's not possible in the kingdom. Like you sell out to him and he, you you didn't redeem yourself. He redeems you and all of it belongs to him so he wanted my believing loyalty and and that's what he has now so um human beings and their mission to understand everything try to find an explanation for everything and it's so easy to look at our lives as christians as new creation and say okay what part of this whole life i live is god's responsibility and what part is my responsibility what part is god's bit And what part is my bit? And we want to figure that out. And in the new creation, through the Spirit, God and the believing individual are so intertwined. They're so close that those things can't be separated out. we got to stop doing that. Um, It's a new category. Being a new creation is a new category. You're a new thing. And when you try to use the old categories to talk about it, it's always going to be unsatisfying. The answers are never going to work. Why try to separate what has been unified in the spirit? You you and God are so intertwined. Your wills are so intertwined. If you're saved, if you're a believer, if you're in Messiah, that um, trying to separate that out is a, a futile activity. So our new creation reality, it was mirrored back when we were dead in sin and captive to the powers of this age. Whereas in the new creation, we are intertwined with God. Our desire and our will is influenced by him. Unsaved humanity back before we were in Messiah is very much under the influence of the powers of the principalities that Paul talks about here in chapter two. Um, People tend to have this conception of That if they were to become a Christian, they'd enter into all this bondage, that there's all these prohibitions and things you can't do. And I don't want any part of that because I'm free out here. And that is so not true. It's just a dream. It's a made-up reality. Um, No one outside of Jesus is really and truly free. Um, So verses 1 through 3, outlining that dead in sin, that has its roots all the way back in Genesis. Um, Humanity, remember, was made to image God, but they turn away to their own desires and they are cut off from life. They choose death. Um, The names Adam and Eve in Hebrew, in Hebrew, those names mean human and life. So inside of that, right there in Genesis, there's this claim that all of humanity has made this choice has made the choice to turn away from God and to turn to their own ways. They've all made this choice for sin. And verse 2 says that when we were dead in our sins, we walked in step with the age of this world, the ruler of the authority of the air. This is an important aspect, an important part of how Paul sees the human condition, the, the condition of humanity outside of Messiah. The evil times in which we live are not only of our own making. Humanity is captive to dark spiritual forces that contribute to evil in the world. And understanding how Paul and other early Christians thought of powers in the spiritual realm informs how we should live and how we should think in this age. But we've got a problem. And this is our problem. Our problem is technology has found an answer for everything. You know, we have so many answers that people didn't have back in biblical times, and uh, in turn, humans have despiritualized everything. So we see often the views of uh, people in biblical times as primitive, um, because we have all this science and we know all these things. We see them as primitive, but just because something is ancient does not mean that it is primitive. And just as an increase in the abilities of technology don't necessarily equal an increase in our understanding of the world we live in and how things work. And it seriously really doesn't equal a greater understanding of how spiritual things work. Um, Technology does not help us there. Um, Just because we can look at someone's cells under a microscope and tell them why they're dying... Doesn't mean that we get to dismiss spiritual components of life and death and all of that. That's still a reality. Um, we have all these explanations for like childhood development. You know, if you take somebody from this situation and stick them in this horrible orphanage and these terrible things happen to them, surprise or not, they become a sadist. And we think we can explain all that based on brain chemistry and nurturing and all of that stuff. And I'm not saying that's bad but at the same time, there's a spiritual component that we so frequently dismiss because we have so much knowledge. And uh, Paul's worldview, his apocalypse, remember, it consisted of more than he could just perceive with his five senses. And these powers and principalities were part of the way that he saw the world. When he saw a Roman centurion mistreating someone, um, he wasn't just like, hey, that person's a sadist, and they were probably brought up terribly. He saw the powers at work when he saw them being abused. When it, Paul saw churches dividing over ethnic matters, he saw the powers at work. Like, we have so many good things, so much good knowledge in this age that we've learned, but I wonder if Paul saw a church dividing over ethnic matters, if his answer would have been to go in and give them all personality to tests to see why they couldn't get along. You know, I don't know that that would have been his answer. And um, again, I'm not trying to say like, we don't need doctors or anything. Like all that stuff is good. But there's a deeper meaning here that we have lost because of how much we know, the explosion of knowledge. So as we go into next week, just consider this. What if what Paul understood and what he communicated through his letters is the understanding that matters most? rather than the understanding that we usually seek when we look at the world. And what if we've not only lost touch with the early Christian understanding of dark forces in the heavenly realm, but we've also become ashamed to admit it's true, because it sounds like fairy tales to us. It sounds like kids' stories, the spiritual stuff, and we're ashamed to talk about it. What if that's the case? Because, you know, if you could talk about things in the scientific realm, well, then you're just smart, But if you start really talking about paul's understanding of the spiritual realm and dark forces well people might start to think you're crazy but it's true and it was part of his worldview so we need to consider it so next week we'll be going into talking about powers and principalities and how all of that works it'll be fun and exciting and challenging let's pray lord we thank you that you've revealed to us a complete picture Of the age we live in, of the age to come, Lord. I thank you that you give us wisdom and discernment and how to live our lives today, Lord. We thank you that we needn't be ashamed of the truth. And uh, I thank you that you've made us secure in your kingdom, that you father us, that you lead us in so many ways, Lord. I pray that you would continue to deepen the revelation that you've given us, help us to walk it out to work it out in everything we do, Lord. Help us to truly live as your handiwork in the kingdom. Help us to love each other as the body. Lift each other up and encourage each other, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.